Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 146 tonight. Psalm 146. Hopefully you're not too tired from shoveling snow today. Psalm 146 marks the beginning of the Hallelujah Psalms. The last five psalms in the psalm book are Hallelujah Psalms. All of them start with the phrase, Praise ye the Lord, or Hallelujah. And tonight I've simply titled the message, Praise ye the Lord. Psalm 146 says, Praise ye the Lord, praise the Lord. O my soul, while I live, will I praise the Lord. I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever, which executeth judgment for the oppressed, which giveth food to the hungry, the Lord looseth the prisoners. The Lord openeth the eyes of the blind, the Lord raiseth them that are bowed down, the Lord loveth the righteous. The Lord preserveth the strangers, he relieveth the fatherless and widow, But the way of the wicked he turneth upside down. The Lord shall reign forever, even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations. Praise ye the Lord. Tonight, it's our intention to demonstrate from this psalm that the Lord should be praised. And that this should be the deep desire of every one of our hearts. Every one of us should desire to give God praise not only with the things that we say about Him, but also the way that we reflect what we think about Him in the way that we live our life. The psalmist is clearly calling to a place of worship, and he is telling us that we ought to praise the Lord. And that's what we see in the first two verses. There is a resolve to praise that is shared with us. First of all, the psalmist in the very first part of verse 1 simply says, praise ye the Lord. This is a universal call to all men to come and praise the Lord. And the way that it is written, it is in the imperative. This is a command. This is something that is rightly expected from every one of us. If you've been made by the hand of God, and you have, then you ought to praise the Lord. Tonight, the psalmist says, praise ye the Lord. And I want to remind you this evening, as the psalmist is doing here, that if you are a worshiper of God, one of the things that you ought to be doing is modeling that worship and calling others to join you in that worship. So worship is not just a private part of our life, something that we keep quiet or under wraps, something that we do Uh, in the privacy of our home and out of the eye of other people. But praise is really something that we invite others to join us in, and then we model for them, this is how you ought to praise the Lord. It's a universal call, but also we see that the psalmist has a personal determination that he shares with us. In verse number one, he says this, Praise the Lord, 
O my soul. He is admonishing himself to praise the Lord. Did you ever find that there are times when you're not in the mood for praising God? It's difficult to get busy praising God. And sometimes you have to talk to yourself and say, come on, you need to be praising the Lord. You need to be worshiping the Lord. You need to get in gear and start talking to the Lord about how good he is. Usually when you do that, your wanter changes somewhere along the way and it gets to be a lot more enjoyable than when you started. But you'll notice in verse 1 that the psalmist is indicating that he wants the praise of God to come from the deepest part of his being. He wants his soul to praise the Lord. What a shame it is if we just put on a thin veneer of praise and worship. If we just go through the outward motions of worship, but that worship is not coming from our heart. The Bible tells us in John chapter 4 that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We ought to do our very best to make sure that there's nothing hypocritical about our worship, but that our worship indeed is coming from the very depths of our being, from our inner man, we are praising God. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, while I live, will I praise the Lord? You know, you're not going to live for long. Hate to break it to you. We're not here on this earth for very long. We don't have much of an opportunity to praise God here. And you could say, well, I I know, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to praise the Lord. Yes, we are going to praise the Lord in heaven. But God's intention is for us to use our time while we are here to praise him. And so the psalmist in verse 2 says, while I live, will I praise the Lord. The, The sense is, I'm going to make the most out of my opportunity to praise God. Too often, those who call themselves God's people are using their life for their own purposes and plans. They're busy living out their own dreams and following after their own pursuits, and they're too busy to praise God with their life. But the psalmist says, I want to make sure that I'm praising God while I live. And then he goes on and expands on that thought in verse 2, and he says, I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. While I have any being. The idea is... If I'm existing at all, if I have any strength at all, any life left in me at all, then I want God to hear me singing praises to him. If I have breath, if I have life, if I have strength, then may my breath, life, and strength be directed to worshiping and praising God. He truly is worthy of our praise Tonight, if you have the ability, you ought to praise Him. You ought to want to praise Him. It ought to be your intention, your desire, and you ought to plan it into your life. So he starts the psalm with the resolve to praise. And then the rest of the psalm, he talks about some reminders that we need to trust the Lord. Because this one, this God that we praise, this Jehovah, is the God that we can trust. He's the God of hope, and specifically, he's praising God for the hope that he has in the Lord. So there's a reminder to trust. Now, in verses 3 and 4, he talks about who not to trust. And just in case we get confused about this, and many times in our lives we put our trust in the wrong place, 
So he wants us to get this settled before he talks about where our trust should be. And he says, put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man. Now, why would someone put their trust in princes? Princes are men of authority. They're usually men of wealth. They're usually men who have resources and some level of authority to be able to command things to be done one way or the other. Princes are the kind of people that we tend to go to when we're looking for help with the situations in our life. People who have the capacity to do something about our problem. But the psalmist says, be careful. Put not your trust in princes. There is no help in these princes. That word help that is used in verse 3, when it says, in whom there is no help, that word help means deliverance or victory or safety. It's the idea of, I don't know what to do or where to turn, so I'm going to run to these men and I'm going to look to them for answers. And he says, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in the Son of Man. Now, why should we not put our trust here? Because it's misplaced trust. We're we're looking to men to do something that only God can do. We're, We're looking for hope in the wrong place. Isn't it ironic that we have a God in heaven that we can talk to about our needs? And yet so often when we have a need, he's the last person that we talk to about that need. He's the last one that we go to. We're telling everybody else around us, hoping that somebody can solve our problem. And God in heaven says, I'm here. I'm ready to listen. If you'll come and bring your petition, I'll hear it. I'll answer your prayer. So he says, be careful. Don't put your trust in princes. There's no help in them. No help in the Son of Man. Why? Well, because of what verse 4 says. Every prince and every other man, or woman for that matter, has the same problem that all of us have. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. What is he speaking about? He's speaking about the fact that all men, no matter their station in life, their wealth, the resources that they have, all men have the same problem, and that is we are here for a short time. Men may think themselves to be strong, especially men of authority or men with wealth or men who have resources, men who have wisdom, men who are used to getting things done. But don't forget that every man is going to die someday. The day is coming when that man is going to breathe for the last time. That's what's described in verse 4. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. His body's going to be committed back to the earth, And in that very day, his thoughts will perish. All the essence of that man, everything, his dreams, his plans, his intentions, his his wealth that he has accrued, all the things that make that man so important will be gone. His thoughts will perish. If you think about that tonight, 
This is not intended to be depressing. This is intended to be instructive for us. It is to remind us that when we look to men, we're looking to the wrong place for help because men are here for a short time. Trust in man is misplaced because man has a very short perspective. And honestly, his strength is very fragile and weak. We should remind ourselves that this is true of us, and we should remind ourselves that this is true of all men around us. It is amazing to me how proud men are, despite the fact that they are extremely fragile, despite the fact that they cannot guarantee their own life. People think, well, I have a good doctor. I live in a country where there's good medical care. I I have access to the best medicine. Surely I'll live a long life. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. And so we're reminded not to trust in men. Our tendency is to go to men, look to men for their their help, and, and to think, well, men, they'll solve my problems. Now, in contrast to that, he's going to remind us where we should find our hope. And from verses 5 through 10, he's going to tell us, this is why your hope ought to be in the Lord God. Jehovah ought to be the source of hope for your life. Where should we find our hope? Verse 5. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Now, there's something that is really special about verse 5. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help. Do you know anything about Jacob? Jacob. He's one of the patriarchs, one of the men that we speak about from the book of Genesis, but if you're reading through your Bible for the year right now, you probably are reading a little bit about Jacob's life or maybe just did a couple of weeks ago. And Jacob, now that guy was messed up. He had a lot of problems. And actually, a lot of his problems came because Jacob trusted in Jacob too much. And God had to bring him to the place where Jacob stopped trusting in Jacob and started trusting in Jehovah. And basically, the story of Jacob's life is God bringing him to that place, hemming him in with circumstances, and bringing him to the place where he finally surrendered to Jehovah and realized that he couldn't figure everything out himself. But when I see that he's the God of Jacob, I think this is intended to focus my attention and your attention on the mercy of Jehovah. Because certainly when we think about Jacob and God's dealings with him, we're reminded that God is a God of mercy. He helps those who are unworthy. When we read about the life of Jacob, we think, why would Jehovah ever help him? That guy, he messed up. Oh, because I think God wants to remind us that he helps unworthy people. That means there's hope for all of us. That means we don't have to prove ourselves worthy of his help. We just have to admit that we need it. But now notice what he says, happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help. 
You say, well, it doesn't seem like happy circumstances when you're in need of help. That means that there's a problem. That means something's wrong. That means that something's difficult when you need help. Yes. And it's in those situations when we're reminded how desperately we need God's help that we can find real happiness. That word happy means to be blessed, to have the favor of God upon us. And if God is your help, then according to this verse, you will experience true happiness. You and I tend to think that happiness comes from being a self-made man, from pulling ourselves up and and making our way in the world and being successful and getting all the things that we want to go after, getting all of our dreams. And God wants to remind us that happiness is actually found in the presence of the Lord. Like Jacob, you and I need to find out how dependent we are upon the mercy and grace of Jehovah. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord His God. Did you see that? The Lord, His God. And I want to ask you tonight, is the Lord your God? Is He your God? Do you worship Him? Do you know Him? Are you aware of your need for Him? And tonight, is He truly your hope? Or have you found yourself putting hope in some of the wrong places. Tonight, you say, I'm not very happy. Well, maybe the source of your angst, your upsetness, I don't think that's a word, but I made it up, your agitation, there we go, maybe it's because you're putting your hope in the wrong place. God says you could be happy if you'll put your hope in Him. So happiness comes from hoping in God, and the reason is because, according to verse 6, He's the one who made it all, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. Did you ever think about this? He made it all. Because of that, it all belongs to Him. Think about how we fight and scratch, and save, and work, and we, we do everything we can just to get a little piece of this earth that we're going to call our own. We're going to buy some land. We're going to have a house to live in, and we're going to put some things on that land and in that house, and we're going to live there, and we're going we're gonna to spend our life, most of us, working and paying the mortgage and the utilities And don't forget the taxes, lest you think it's yours. It's actually not, because anytime you stop paying taxes, the government will take it right back from you. And we do all that so we can have a little piece of this earth, something that would give us a little security to say, this is mine. And then we're reminded, the one who we're to hope in, he made it all. The whole earth, all the sea. Everything that's in the earth, there's not a thing that doesn't belong to him. He's wealthy beyond our wildest imaginations. He's the creator of it all. And the implication, according to verse 6, is 
If he's strong enough to make it and it all belongs to him, then our hope is properly placed in him because he is incredibly mighty. He is the omnipotent God, the maker of everything. That's a wonderful, wonderful thought. He made the heaven. He made the earth. He made the sea, which we're told is largely undiscovered. And all that therein is, all the mysterious creatures, all the wealth. These days, when you buy a piece of property in certain places, they talk about mineral rights. And what they mean is, if there's oil under there, you either have the rights to it or you don't. And actually, if you pay much attention up in the northern part of Pennsylvania, when pieces of property come up for sale, oftentimes it says, mineral rights not conveyed. You're just buying the top part. Underneath belongs to somebody else. But really, it all belongs to God. We're thinking, do we have enough resources? Are we going to run out? Are we going to have enough to heat our homes, to, to, to do the things that we need to do, to, to grow crops and feed our family? And God says, I got it covered. He's made it all. And he's going to take care of his people. He made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that therein is. And then we're reminded in verse 6 that he keepeth truth forever. <coughs> truth. Truth is a needed thing today. People are confused about weird stuff today. They can't figure out a lot of things. One of the most important things that people are confused about is how to have a relationship with God. Men all around us in all kinds of religions are pursuing after all kinds of promises of how to have a relationship with God And it's completely misplaced because it's not according to the truth. But God is the one who has declared that which is true. All truth is God's truth. Whether it's truth about mathematics or truth about science or truth about man's soul, all truth comes from God. And we're told here, that he is the one who keeps truth. This is amazing. You and I can be sure that truth will never be overcome because God is the keeper of truth. In fact, we live in such an age of deception today, it can be hard to know who to believe, who's telling the truth. And we could become, get to a place of despair where we start to wonder, well, is the truth just going to completely disappear and everything's just going to become a lie and nobody's going to know what's right? That's not going to happen. Because God has declared that he is the keeper of the truth. And then remarkably, the keeper of the truth, we are told in other places that he has also promised to keep the truth of his word accessible for every generation. What a privilege it is to have the revelation of God, to know who he is and to know what his expectations are and how we are to worship him, 
So he ought to be praised and we ought to hope in him because he's the God which keepeth truth forever. Verse 7, he, he not only is the maker of all that is and he keeps the truth, but it says in verse 7, which executeth judgment for the oppressed. That means he carries out righteous judgment. It's a great consolation to me that God is watching and paying attention to those who are oppressed. Tonight, there are oppressed people all over this world. There are people who are being taken advantage of. People who are being mistreated by others. People whose resources are being stolen and they are being pushed down and kept from achieving the things that they ought to achieve. And what gives us consolation is to know that God is paying attention. And he is going to judge. God is going to execute or carry out righteous judgment upon the oppressors. Tonight, I want to warn you to beware of taking advantage of others. Because if you take advantage of someone else, you're going to find quickly that God is your adversary. It is a very dangerous thing to take advantage of others. And it's definitely not in your best interest. He's the God which executeth judgment for the oppressed because he is the righteous God. Now, we may feel that the wheels of justice move too slowly and why doesn't God do something? And I can't understand why he allows all these horrible things to happen in the world. Well, that's because we have a short perspective From his eternal perspective, God is certainly well aware of what is going on, and he definitely is going to judge sin. He definitely is going to execute judgment. Then we find, number five, that he giveth food to the hungry. Isn't that a blessing? Do you know tonight, did you eat dinner tonight before you came to church, some of you? Maybe some of you didn't have time. You say, we're going to eat when we get home. Did you have lunch? Breakfast? Most of you had every meal today, didn't you? Where'd that food come from? You say, oh, Costco. Wise markets, that's where, that's where it came from. No, no, it came from the Lord. You see, if the Lord didn't provide food, there wouldn't be food for us to eat. He giveth food to the hungry. One of the reasons that we ought to give thanks to God when we sit down to eat is because we're reminded that every time we put food in our mouth, it's God's goodness to us. It's God taking care of our needs. He gives food to those who are hungry. He even gives food to people who don't appreciate Him, who don't worship Him, and who think that He hasn't provided anything for them. He's a good and gracious God. And specifically, he's a God who promises to provide for the daily bread of his children. If you're eating regularly, you ought to thank God for his provision. I was reading this morning in my devotions in the book of Exodus about the children of Israel, and they needed food, and they cried out to the Lord, and God gave them manna. And every day, except the Sabbath, for 40 years, God gave them manna. And they went out, and they collected that manna, and then they did things with it, and they ate it. And it provided for their needs. Every day, there was a miracle. 
But you know what happened after a while? They said, we loathe this light bread. We hate, we despise the provision of God. We want something different. We don't like what God is giving to us. That's a lot like us, isn't it? But what a good God to provide for our needs, to give us the things that we truly need in our life. He gives food to those who are hungry. Not only that, it goes on and says that the Lord looseth the prisoners. He lets prisoners go free. And thank God tonight, and I hope you have praised Him and will praise Him again, that He has set us free from the power of sin. Many of you can look back in your life and see where you used to be and see how God has brought deliverance and freedom, liberty in your life and what a privilege it is to be let go free from your bondage. Jesus exhibited this power repeatedly when he was setting people free from the power of demons that bound them in a spiritual prison. They would meet Jesus. The demon would be cast out and that person would go Free. They'd be a different person because they were delivered. There are many today, many today, who are bound in a spiritual prison. Perhaps a spiritual prison of demonic possession. You say, Pastor, do you believe that people are demon-possessed today? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The devils are working in this world. There's no doubt about it. But Jesus' power is greater. He sets prisoners free. You say, well, I know someone that's got a sin problem that's got them in bondage. Jesus can set them free. He lets prisoners go free. That's his power. That's what gives us hope. If our hope was in psychology or in medication or in the ability of man to solve man's problems, how hopeless is that? I don't know how much you've read about how men want to solve men's problems. They usually end up messing it up worse. Not only that, he goes on in verse number 8 and says, the Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. Praise God for that. He opens the eyes of the blind. And of course, Jesus literally healed people whose eyes were closed, who couldn't see Uh, Physically, he restored their sight to them. But more importantly, we understand that many people are blinded by the God of this world. Their, Their eyes are closed off so they can't see the truth of the gospel. But God is actively working to open the eyes of those who are blind. Tonight, do you remember when God opened your eyes to the truth? When you saw your true condition and you realized what Jesus had done for you, and you recognize that you must obey the gospel? Do you remember when that happened in your life? What a wonderful privilege it is when God opens the eyes of those who are blind. This gives us hope. Maybe you've got a family member or someone that you care about, a friend, and their eyes are blinded and they just can't see the truth of the gospel. Never forget that you serve a God who is a God of hope because he opens blind eyes. Never stop praying for them. Not only that, it says he raises up those that are bowed down. The picture in verse 8 is of someone who is bowed down with cares, someone who is weighed down with trouble. As we look at the world around us, we recognize that many people are weighed down by their sinful choices. 
They're burdened down by the heavy circumstances of life, by the, by the trouble that has come upon them. Many people are weighed down. But you understand tonight that God can lift those people up and he can give them joy. He can give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's what our God can do. And this ought to give us hope that God can lift up people who are in a a bad way, people who are weighed down. In fact, sometimes it's not until people get weighed down that they're ready to look up. You see, so often when men are doing well in their life, they refuse to look up to God because of their pride. But God delights in raising up people that are bowed down. It says in verse 8, the Lord loveth the righteous. Those who love righteousness are the friends of the Lord. If you're a child of God tonight, you should love holiness and you should love the kind of life that is pleasing to the Lord in every way and you should take confidence in the fact that He loves you. In fact, we love Him because He first loved us. What a joy that is. And it's also a joy to know that our righteousness is not our own, but it is the imputed and implanted righteousness of Jesus Christ that is working its way out in our life. Verse 9, he says, The Lord preserveth the strangers. The stranger was the person who was... They didn't belong. They were not at home in the nation of Israel. They they weren't apart. They they were from some other place. Because of that, they were often a, a person that was looked down on. People tend to look down on strangers, don't they? They tend to look down on those who are unfamiliar, or those who don't seem to belong in in the place where we're at. And it's this man that God will preserve. It says, the Lord preserveth the strangers. And this gives us consolation because the New Testament tells us that you and I are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We're passing through in a place that we don't belong. This is not where we're going to stay But the Lord is in the business of preserving the stranger. Thank God for his preservation in our life. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if he didn't preserve us, what would come of us? If he didn't preserve us. Then we find in verse number 9, he relieveth the fatherless and the widow. God cares about those who are forsaken. The ones that no one cares about and no one is responsible for. Today, there are many fatherless and widows. There are many forsaken people in the world around us. There are people that are despised and looked down on, but God in heaven cares about the fatherless and the widows. I suggest to you that if Jehovah is concerned about them, shouldn't it be true that we as the people of God would also have the same heart for those who are in need? Those who are in pitiful situations, sometimes through no doing of their own. You know, there's an awful lot of children without parents in this, in this culture that we're living in. A, a lot of young people that have been forsaken by those who gave birth to them. There's a lot of people who've been forsaken by the systems of this world and they don't have anything to care for themselves. A lot of people who are lonely. 
a lot of people who need someone to love them. The Lord cares about these people, and I believe He wants us to care about them too. Finally, it says in verse number 9, "...the way of the wicked he turneth upside down." So all of these people that he's blessing, that he cares about, that he loves, but in opposition or contrast to that, it says that he turns upside down the way of the wicked man. The wicked man makes plans, and he intends to walk in his own path. The wicked man is trying to get away with his sin, and what does it say about the Lord? It says, the Lord turns his way upside down. The wicked man really thinks he's getting ahead in the world. He thinks he's got things figured out. He's he's got a plan made, and he's going to live things out a certain way, and he's going to get the things that he's after. And God says, no, that's not the way that life works, and he just turns it upside down. Never mind. Now, lest you think that that's God being cruel, oftentimes that's God being merciful. Because in those moments when God turns the way of a wicked man upside down, it can happen that that wicked man will come to his senses and realize that he's been pursuing after the wrong things altogether. In fact, it could be that God found you in that way. That he turned some things upside down in your life so that you would realize how desperately you needed him. God is in the business of keeping wicked men from doing the things that they have imagined. Now, to some degree, men will get away with their sin. But if God just let it go, if God just let men do whatever they imagined, oh, this world would be a very different place. We would be in a lot of trouble if that was the case. So God frustrates the way of the wicked, and I'm thankful for that. In the end, the wicked man is going to lose it all if he doesn't repent because he has chosen God as his enemy. Then we're reminded in verse 10 that this Jehovah, the Lord that we trust in, that we hope in, he is going to reign forever. The Lord shall reign forever. You and I can be sure that the kingdom of God will endure. God is reigning even now, and not that kind of reign, but ruling. God is ruling even now, And his authority is unmatched and unshakable. There is no God like our God. He is the Lord, and he is going to reign forever. Men think we can overthrow the reign of God. We can overthrow the rule of God. We can do our own thing. We can rebel against him. And God will give them space to do the things that they want for a while. But make no mistake about it, God has not left his throne He's still ruling and reigning. And we're reminded in verse 10 that this Lord who shall reign forever is even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations. Now, this is a special promise to the nation of Israel, but I'd like to make an application to us tonight because there's a tremendous privilege and there's a tremendous blessing in knowing That the Lord, Jehovah, the one who has all this might and all this power, the one in whom there is great hope, he can be your God and my God. He's the God that we ought to worship, but we can know him personally. And then there in Jerusalem, the people of Israel are reminded that he is their God unto all generations. 
But that means that every new generation must discover for themselves the authority of His kingdom. Every new generation must come to the place of recognizing His authority and His rule in their life. And as I'm looking at verse 10, and I'm thinking about some of the young people who are in our room tonight here in the auditorium, I want to ask some of you young people, do you know this God? Is He your God? Or is He your parents' God? Your grandparents' God? A God that you've heard about? A a God that you've listened to messages about? Or is He your God? Because to every new generation, there is a need to discover the authority of His kingdom and to bring yourself under His rulership because He is going to reign forever. The psalm ends simply. Praise ye the Lord. He's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be praised because He's a God who gives us great hope. We live in a generation where people are looking for hope. Now, what we find is many people are looking for hope in the midst of their financial situation. They want a God who's going to fix their financial problems. They need help in their relationship problems. And they want a God who's going to come and fix all their relationship problems. They need hope in their health problems. And they want a God who's going to come and fix all of their health problems. But you know... What we have that is much more important than any of those things is the problem that we have with sin. The fact that we've broken God's law, that we're not right with God because of our own rebellion against Him. And tonight, I want to tell you that the God that we worship is a God who gives hope for forgiveness. A God who gives hope for relationship to people who don't deserve that relationship. He's a God of hope and a God of help. And because of that tonight, we ought to praise the Lord. And so as we prepare to go to prayer tonight, I want to admonish you with the psalmist, praise ye the Lord.